Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. We are dedicated to raising awareness about all issues concerning animals. This includes animal advocacy, activism, protection, conservation and, importantly, appreciation. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia, streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available via 3CR and the Freedom of Species websites. All podcasts are on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. Today I am playing the audio from a panel that Voiceless the Animal Protection Institute put on last year, actually last March. The discussion at hand is still extremely relevant. The title of the panel discussion is Rethinking Dairy. After the panel discussion, stay tuned. There's a great tune and also a lot of community service announcements. Australians love their digital equipment and that's all fine and good because it increases our quality of life, but we need to think more carefully about what we're doing when we're finished with it. E-waste is growing at three times the rate of other municipal waste. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. Welcome everyone to Voices Rethinking Dairy Cows. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are meeting. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to elders from other communities who may be here today. So my name is Elise Burgess, and I'm head of communications at Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute. And I'm also one of the authors on our latest report, The Life of the Dairy Cow, a report on the Australian dairy industry. The result of two years' analysis of current scientific evidence and the relevant legal frameworks This report highlights the need for immediate change in the way these emotionally complex animals are treated. For those of you who don't know, however, Voiceless is a not-for-profit think tank, and we're focused on raising awareness and alleviating the suffering of animals in two core areas within Australia, that is, factory farming and the commercial kangaroo industry. Over the years, we've fought hard to better protect hundreds of millions of animals affected within these industries, 
with a core focus on policy and law reform. To date, the Australian dairy industry has avoided much of the scrutiny that has been levelled at other animal industries due to this false perception of dairy being a no-harm product. See, many people believe that dairy cows live idyllic lives, naturally producing enough milk to feed their young and also provide for human consumption. However, this is not the case. In reality, the average Australian dairy cow is subject to a perpetual cycle of calving, milking and forced impregnation. She has now been bred to, double, sorry, to produce double the milk she may have 30 years ago and to ensure her yield remains at its peak, she's forcibly impregnated every 13 months in, in order to produce a calf who is immediately taken away from her and in many cases, this calf is killed within one week. The emotional suffering that this process causes, along with the physical pain inflicted through standard legal mutilation practices such as tail docking or dehorning, along with the prevalence of painful diseases such as lameness and mastitis, all negatively impact on her welfare. Yet these issues remain hidden from consumer view. And while all these issues are highly, highly distressing, perhaps the most concerning fact to emerge from our research was the push towards mass production. We've seen this already with the egg industry and we've seen it with the meat industries, a push for more animals, more output and more product. In dairy, this would translate to larger herd sizes and dairy cows being fed unnatural high grain diets so they produce more milk every day. We've even seen the rise of total mixed ration dairy farms. These are essentially feedlots for dairy cows. While currently in Australia it is only 2% of dairy farms that are total mixed rations, we want to make sure that these numbers don't rise. Which is why now is the time for us to rethink dairy, to rethink our role as consumers or as producers, and to think about how our demands are impacting on her, the dairy cow. And it seems our timing was right, because the response to the report has been remarkable. Voiceless has been contacted by members of the public who were shocked by the treatment of dairy cows and calves in this country. We've been supported by those who have been working hard to bring attention to this industry, but perhaps most surprisingly and most welcome, we've been contacted by dairy farmers themselves who were glad that, we, that the industrialisation of their industry and the push for mass production and its impact on welfare was being critically assessed. Change, both immediate and long-term, will inevitably rely on the cooperation between farmers, the dairy industry, animal advocates, consumers and government. And it is about not simply accepting the status quo, but to recognise that change is needed. And this is what leads us to our panel session tonight and our selection of panellists. Each of these individuals represent a very important aspect of the dairy debate, working in their own space to bring attention to the modern Australian dairy industry and the treatment of the dairy cow. So, without further ado, our panellists. We have Philip Wallen, a prominent animal welfare advocate and philanthropist. He's an... <laughs> Philip is an honorary fellow of the Oxford Centre of Animal Ethics in the UK, and in 2005 he won the Australian of the Year Award for Victoria in recognition for his work of charitable support of charitable causes, but especially for his work in the animal protection movement. Next we have Mo Wise. 
who is co-owner of Smith & Daughters, a vegan restaurant in Fitzroy. Moe's Restaurant, Smith & Daughters, was recognised as the People's Choice Award in the 2014 Time Out Food Awards, and she has successfully brought vegan food to the mainstream. We next have Vicky Jones, who runs a small dairy farm in Victoria, using organic practices and a farming model that rejects many of the standard farming practices common in Australian dairy. And of course, we have Dr Deidre Wicks, who is an Honorary Research Associate at Newcastle University and an Honorary Research Fellow at National University of Ireland. <laughs> Deidre has been a council member for Voiceless since 2010, and she was also an integral part of our Voiceless Dairy Report. So please welcome our panellists. Okay, so to get us started, I'm going to open with a fairly generic question for our panel, and we're going to treat this as a very open discussion between the four members, and then with about 20 minutes or so to go, we'll then open it up to Q&A from the audience. So to start with, I think I might start with Deidre, all the way down the end. Um, what would you say is your key concern about the production of dairy in Australia? Yes, it's hard to separate the issues out and to say what's your key concern because all the, wealth, all the welfare concerns, in a sense, are related to the push for production and for volume from the, from the cow. And if you look at the three questions that we put in the report to judge the welfare, the animal welfare of the cow, we ask, is the animal functioning well? Is the animal feeling well? Is the animal able to live a reasonably natural life and express natural behaviours? We see that certainly in intensive dairy, um, there are problems for some of the cows, some of the time, across those three issues. So there's a lot of welfare problems that relate back to the fact that what we're trying to do is get a lot of milk from one animal. Um, if I was pushed... I would say that the key issue of dairy production, modern dairy production for me, that I find most unacceptable is the whole issue of the separation of the calf from the cow. And, you know, some people can say, oh, look, the cow doesn't mind, it's anthropomorphism, you're imposing your human view on what cows experience. But there is scientific evidence now which looks at heart rates, vocalisations, restlessness that are indicators of great distress. And combined with that is the fate of these little male calves. Most of you probably know that many of the female calves will be used as replacement uh, cows for the herd. But there is really no task, function, for the little boy calves who are known as bobby calves. And approximately 800,000 are sent off to be killed every year in Australia. And I find that actually unacceptable. So that's the, that's the main key welfare issue. Great. For me. So, Vicky, from your perspective as working on the ground, have you seen a development in positive treatment towards bobby calves? Or what is your take on the bobby calf issue and how it has been handled within the industry? Um, uh, uh, no, I haven't. I think the, the problem with, um, with, with the bobby calves is that they, um, there's nobody representing them. 
for starters. So I've you know, had conversations with Jerry Australia and with MLA um, about developing markets so that farmers can be encouraged to rear the calves and um, neither of them were interested because it wasn't their area. So, um, so, so basically, um, I think farmers are so pushed mm -hmm. that um, there's just no, there's no, and uh, and I've had, I've had farmers say to me that they just, yeah, it's just, they just, it's impossible for them to, to raise them. Uh, and I think the problem is, is there's no um, incentive for them to raise them because there's, there's, um, there's no market. So, do you think that? Does it lend itself to become then a consumer responsibility to show that they care about bobby cars, or do you think change really should come from industry or from farmers? Um, I think what's what we've done on the farm, um, it's it, we've proven that um, the consumers will certainly support it, without 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 a doubt. Um, I think industry needs to to spend that they have a lot of money, and they could they could invest some of this money in in developing markets. And encouraging people to um, to to, um, to take it on. Um, unfortunately, in Australia, they're not dairy beef. I mean, we're so competitive, and we're growing, you know, hormone-grown, grain-fed beef animals. That this poor little dairy calf that's not designed to put on massive volumes of weight is um, it, there's just no room for it to to um, to be seen as a, an economically viable. Um, um, I suppose product for, for farmers to grow on, and it's um, yeah, it's really really sad. But we've we've you know we've made changes in our practices, and we've been really well supported by by our community and our consumers, and we've been able to take this horrendous practice and and turn it into something really beautiful, and and give these calves a in fact they have a better life, a longer life than what an, the average beef. What do you do, Vicky? Can you talk? Oh, so we um. So I've been a dairy farm for 24 years. Um, With and the bobby cars. Oh yeah, sorry. So we basically um, now um, with with our dairy, we 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 make the calves our priority. So so um, we had a system where, where we would retire cows um, to raise you know to raise the calves. But um, cows being females and um, being good organisers, basically um, they've taken they've taken charge of the situation. So. Because the bobby calves are, are, are a priority, um, they're not. We don't consider them you know, a, waste, a waste product. The, we, we allow the cows that do have very strong mothering instincts to raise the calves. So they either let them, they either run in the herd, and that depends on the calf on how. Um, on it's hard to explain. Some calves just come in and they've been here before. They just know know the system and and they and they'll run with their mums and it's. Um, so at times we'll have anything up to 20 or 30 calves running in the herd, and um, and they'll actually, uh, when you talk about the emotions, there's there's actually communication happening. So sometimes when the cow is going on the rotary, she'll be talk, you can hear her talking, she'll be you know she'll be like you know mooing, and then and you'll hear the calf going, yep, it's okay, mum, I'm over here. <laughs> so um, th yeah, they do. There is um, a very strong bond. Some um, some of the calves um, go, um, go. We actually have cows. We have cows that we retire. Um, oh, we try. Sorry, we they either stay in the herd with the mums or they go they go out on on. We generally put two calves on a cow and they go out and they run run in another herd. So we've got at the moment I think about 40 cows that are raising calves. So that's just part of our part of our model. Um, so how, how unusual is that model? Do you find compared to say conventional dairy? Oh yeah, it's. I don't think there's. I think what what made it possible for us was was. Um, Having a community that supported us, okay. um, we've got a much stronger farm gate price, and um, and um, so, so that's actually what's made it made it possible. Um, okay, that's, yeah, it's, it's interesting to talk about the uh, pressure of farm gate prices. So, 
If, is that something that is more driven by consumers or industry? I wonder, Philip, if you have some insights on that, about the idea about consumer or market demand and how that is eventually transferred into pressure on the animal. Dairy farmers would not produce a single litre of milk if consumers didn't buy it. You want to improve this industry? Stop demanding milk. That's, that's, uh, that's it at, at its core. Mm. It all starts with a customer. Dairy, dairy farmers are in business, and they're there to satisfy our needs. If we don't demand it, they'd find something better to do and make more money out of it in the process, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. That's really interesting. Mo, from a, a, I suppose, a vegan retailer perspective, how have you found consumers responding to Smith & Daughters? Because it's not your typical vegan restaurant. It's actually just a very cool, hip restaurant in, that happens to be vegan. So how have you found people respond to your vegan menu? Well, it's really interesting because I think the proof is in the pudding. We have 120 seats. They're filled every single night that we're open, six days a week, sometimes twice and sometimes three times over. Mm -hmm. We're selling about 400 meals a night. So. I think that that says it in itself, how people are receiving it. And I think the more interesting thing is we're not taking polls or anything at the end of the night, but if you look around the audience and you look at sort of the interactions that our staff are having with the customers, 75, 80% of the customers are nowhere near being vegetarian. They're there because, why? Because mainstream media has covered us. We won some awards. Their nagging vegan partner brought them there. Their child, who's that, always been that uh, isolated vegan in the family, brought them there. <laughs> and I think that is really amazing. So basically, my business partner, Shannon, and I, we got our heads together, and what we said was, we're going to make a restaurant that's accessible. Something that's not about what's not there, but what is there. And, and the key is not using the word vegan. It's, it's a shame, but using the words plant-based, or just saying it's good food that also happens to be vegan, so that people are coming in with no predisposition. They're coming in for a good time, a great cocktail, and they're also leaving, and some of them maybe not even knowing that they ate at a vegan restaurant. They had a really great omelet or a really great sour, whatever it might be that, you know, there was eggs in that. I know, I know there was eggs in that. So the point of uh, our whole mission was, was to really be that, you know, undeniable, if it's good and they've eaten it. I mean, some people say the, the way to someone's heart is through their stomach, and I think that's true. I think there's something very undeniable and um, maybe a bit sad about human nature that it has to be a very selfish thing. They have to take it on themselves to make those changes. So if they've had a great meal, then maybe they'll make some changes at home. Maybe they'll look up some other recipes. Maybe they'll look into alternatives on their own. But I think sort of going back to what everyone else has said, I think it's all about awareness. I mean, the consumer is the only person that can stop demand, but what about the dietitian authority of Australia that's telling us that we need to have 2.5 to 4 servings of dairy a day? And I mean, it, I, I hear the words every day, regular and normal. Oh no, I'll just have a cappuccino with regular milk. What's regular about drinking milk from another species? Um, there's not really anything normal about that, but we do have soy and almond and coconut and oat and hazelnut and no, no, just regular milk. No, no, but so using positive language and mm. maybe turning someone's, you know, thought process around. Yeah. And we see it all. 
we see we see the whole gamut of people who are totally resistant and then people who are willing to have an open mind. That's actually it's very interesting what you bring up about the influence of industry like dairy and whatnot. Um, Deidre, I know that in our research for the report we came across some fairly interesting statistics about influential parties. Um, are you able to elaborate on that sort of partnership? Yes, well, it's a little disconcerting that some of our national dietary bodies have as their sponsors major uh, dairy-associated companies. And um, it's interesting, even though a lot of those like the Dietetics Association still recommend a certain amount of dairy. The NH and MRC, their latest report actually refers to the need to have so many servings a day of dairy or alternatives. So that's been a big change. That was the first time that's ever happened, wasn't it? That's right. Um, but it, it, it is worrying. I mean, they argue, the Dietetics Association argue that they keep that sponsorship separate from their um, overall philosophy and research, but it's not a good look, you know? It, it's a little bit dodgy, and uh, I don't think it's a good thing. I mean, for any organisation to have vested interests uh, investing in them. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to sort of a question about transparency and to sort of bring it back to uh, welfare, or the dairy cow, I should say. Um, I might just try to get a little personal. So, Philip, um, what raised your initial concerns about dairy? Like, what sort, of, what sort of piqued your interest? Because what we found in the report is the vast majority of people have no idea they should even be concerned about dairy cows. So, what, could you give us a bit of insight into yourself? I, I was a merchant banker, and my, sorry to tell you this, but my favourite food in those days was filet mignon and lobster, a fact for which I'm so profoundly ashamed today. And my experience in the slaughterhouses changed me to getting off uh, eating meat at all. And then I was on a business trip to India, and I watched as a dairyman dragged his terrified cow who had been badly injured in an accident with a lorry and broken her spine. He dragged her to the gates of the slaughterhouse, getting her to move by throwing chili powder into her eyes. And alongside her was her bedraggled, starving calf. And before he handed over the, the cow to the slaughterman, the bastard milked her. Uh -uh. If that doesn't change the heart of a man, I'm going to tell you nothing will. It affected me profoundly. And this was in India, a nation of Hindus and Jains who profess to worship the cow. Let's remember that India has the world's largest dairy herd. Okay? So when I came back, and I come from the bush, so I'm going to be blunt. My attention span for nonsense is two nanoseconds. I saw cows being forcibly impregnated. I saw dehorning, disbudding, induction, tail docking, lameless, mastitis. I saw bobby calves being taken away from their grieving mothers. All new to me. I didn't have a clue before that. Saw them starved, loaded onto transport trucks, and taken to slaughter at the age of four days old, away from their grieving mothers. And so-called unviable calves, created for management purposes. 
they were killed. And I watched as someone would smash their heads in with a hammer or jump on their ribs and crush their hearts. That's how they were killed. So, this is what made me decide to look into the dairy industry in great depth. And um, I know it's going to be a very difficult task because, like, I'm going to speak like a merchant banker now, there are big barriers to every industry to get into the industry. But there are also big exit barriers. So I, I always cut the farmers a lot of slack because they've got a lot invested in there and we need to make the tr transition away more palatable. And that's part of what I'd like, if I get, the, if I get asked the question, I'll talk about. Uh, and uh, perhaps I will. So that's what brought me to the, to, to the dairy industry, amongst other things. Well, you've left me no choice. I simply <laughs> must ask, what would you see as being then a transition period or transition process for dairy farmers? It takes the, the consumer. If, we, if, the, if farmers generally, and, and please remember, dairy is the other side of the coin of the meat industry. They're both inextricably tied together. Okay? So any criticisms we make of the dairy industry, we could make with equal force against the meat industry. Let's not just pick on dairy for that purpose. Um, we have great resources here in Australia. We now know with absolute certainty that livestock causes more devastation than any other force vector in the environment. Um, livestock releases more greenhouse gas emissions than all of transport put together. Cars, trains, buses, ships, a lot. By 2048, all our fisheries are going to be dead, poisoned by the runoff from our agricultural industries into the oceans. And we've got lots of land, good weather, good systems. We can be the food bowl of the world. And I'm going to tell you that farmers actually are the ones with the most to gain. Farming won't end. It would boom. Only the product line will change. Farmers will make so much money they wouldn't even bother counting it. And I'll be the first to congratulate them. New industries would emerge and, and flourish. Health insurance premiums would plummet. Hospital waiting lists would disappear. Hell, we'd be so healthy, we'd have to shoot someone just to start a cemetery. <laughs> so, and, if you, and at some stage, someone's going to talk about the effect of dairy on human health. I just noticed there's a man in the audience, a gentleman, who is probably one of the world's most renowned authorities on human health um, and dairy. His name is Mark Donadue, and he's somewhere here. If anyone wants to ask, there he is standing there. Um, <laughs> if anyone wants to ask a question, a genuine, interesting question, please talk to him or maybe at Q&A, Mark, and say a few words as well. There you are. Well, that's very... So, Vicky, as, as a dairy farmer who initially started on a conventional dairy farm, the kind of farms that we were talking about in the report, how do you find... Um, how has the transition been, I should say, from a conventional farm to the operation system you have now? And do you see that being as potentially the industry norm? And would there potentially be a transition completely away from that again? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we, um, we've, we've, our farm originally, um, we've got 600 acres in total, um, which originally milked 800 cows. Um, we've, we've cut that down to um, a milking about 120 cows. Um, to make room for you know running the extra stock, but yeah, I I think I actually think farmers would embrace what you're saying. I think they've had a gut pull of the industry. To be honest with you, mm -hmm. it um, it it's oh gosh, I mean it, 
It eats at the, it's, it's, I mean, 98% of the farms in Australia are family owned. The reason that people are drinking milk is because they live on slave labour. Farmers are basically enslaved. Um, in fact, they're not, they're worse than slaves because they're actually going into debt to produce milk. And that's how the industry is surviving. A dollar a litre milk, it's coming at a cost. Um, cost to the calves, to the cows, um, and to people's lives. We lose one farm every four days. You know, and, and, and the, the supermarkets can sit there and these big factories can sit there and, and, and make contracts with, with Coles and Woolies for 10 years to supply them with, with a dollar a litre of milk. milk. How, how can that be sustained? I think farmers, if you came up with a solution, I think they'd embrace it. Mm. Well, can I just add one or two sentences if I may? I used to act for one of Australia's truly great politicians. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? <laughs> but he was the president, he was the leader of the National Party years ago. A wonderful, I think he's still alive, uh, Peter Nixon. And he said something to me, he was deputy prime minister as well. He was a client of mine. And uh, he once said, Phil, you've got to understand that farmers are actually very smart. They've got nothing to do all day but sit on the, tra on the tractor and think. And that's true. They, they are smart. And they will respond well if they, if they handled correctly. Um, I have a lot of, lot of faith in them. Um, and just on the fact of numbers, we're now entering a new kind of paradigm with climate change. And regardless of what Tony Abbott tells you, climate change is, is something real. I, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's real. Um, we just come back recently from India. Um, you all know that livestock, is a pro particularly dairy, is a profligate waster of water particularly in a country like Australia where we don't have a lot of water. And water is the new oil. Nations will soon be going to war over it. I hear one way of expressing it is to say that it takes 1,000 litres of water to produce one litre of milk. And what does a farmer get for it? Something like 50 cents a litre and about 7 cents for, for, um, for solids. Now, that's not a hell of a lot of money for the amount of trouble he goes through, the damage he does to the environment, the, very importantly to the damage he does to uh, um, the cows and their calves and to human health. So every industry in the world undergoes rationalization. Uh, textiles, clothing, footwear, banking, mining, every one of them. This industry will be rationalized too. I think we should st step up to the plate or to the crease and take the initiative and start the process now find other alternatives, like uh, different forms of milk, you know, like soy being, being one, almond milk, oat milk. Uh, there are so many different kinds, and the profit margins are so much better, the wastage ratios are so much lower, and the cash flow forecasts are robust. So I see farmers having so many great opportunities. I just wish I was younger and I could get involved in this transition of this industry. It would be a real fun place to be. Oh, come on, you've got plenty of time, I promise. So to, um, to change tack again now, so we're talking about the pressure being put on the farmer and the low cost that they're getting. To bring it back to the dairy cow, in response to our report, we were talking about how the amount of litres per milk per day um, a calf is, a cow, I should rather, is forced to produce. And the industry av average is between 50 and, sorry, 30 and 50 litres per day 
but there was also mention of cows being pushed up to 60 litres per day. Now, in response to our findings, it was said the cows are now fully equipped to handle this, there's better feed, there's better technology, this is not an animal who's overworked. However, I cannot help but be aghast at the idea of a cow being forced to 60 litres of milk per day. Um, Deidre, do you have any comments on that? Well, just that uh, we did a lot of research, obviously, for the report, and the world-renowned dairy expert, John Webster, he talks about the cow as being the apocryphal overworked mother. Um, and he actually argues that in many instances, it's almost impossible for the cow to eat enough to cover her own nutritional needs plus producing that amount of milk. And the only way it can be done is first, firstly by breeding a cow that's programmed for that and secondly with um, supplementary feeding. And Phillips just talked about all the problems associated with, uh, well, some of the problems associated with that. So I, I think um, John Webster has shown that it's a problem for the cow and it also means that the cow has a shorter life. I mean, it's, it's going at maximum production for a much shorter period. So instead of a natural lifespan, a cow can live to 25 years. Um, these cows generally uh, don't go beyond five years. They don't go into calf, they're sent off to be killed. So I think it is, it is a problem. And uh, I think it's a problem for the cow. I think it's a problem for the farmer because the farmer then has to buy all these expensive feeds. And it's a problem for the environment because those grains are being used in a very inefficient way. Vicky, I understand that um, you've either seen firsthand or through some of your um, farming colleagues a cow who does produce 60 litres. And can you tell us about some of the welfare that you've witnessed, in particular with the, the ligaments around her udder? Oh, yeah, so they, they, they breed these cows to produce massive amounts of milk. Um, the problem, and this is why they have, part of the reason why they have a short lifespan is that, um, unless, I mean, they're obviously trying to breed, the, um, the ligament that, that holds the, the bag together um, literally just, just collapses, just breaks. So you have this cow, and we've had them in the past. We had the high-producing cows, and we were feeding them a amazing nutritional, you know, mixes and, and um, a lot of people did very well out of us and we, we made, we produce a lot of milk mm. but um, yeah it's, we've, we've moved away from that and I wouldn't go back there again because it's, it's not sustainable but um, so what, yeah, so what happens is, is basically the, the, this beautiful big udder that carries this massive amount of milk, um, the ligament breaks and, and then she's got this udder that's dragging on the ground and, and then you basically they, well you just chop, you chop her head off, they chop her head off so mm. She's, um, and that's why often these, these high-producing cows will only have a, um, probably a couple of, just a couple of lactations in the herd. A lot of the big farms, I've been told by people that work in them, that, um, that after two lactations, they're, they're out. So, um, yeah. I know, so, Mo, you've had a, a very strong response to... Well, it just seems the problem is awareness, and it seems like most Australians, Americans, everyone in the world are picturing Vicky's farm as where your milk comes from, uh, Vicky's current farm. And it's amazing to hear words like equipped and 
uh, nutritious feed, I mean, it's, it's as if we're feeding a machine, not an animal. And it's this verbiage that's just treating us like an actual living, breathing, feeling, emotional being as a product to get another product. And there's so many things to go into, but there's this great quote that man will always come up with a solution to tamper with nature to get what man wants. I mean, it is shocking to, to come up with solutions to combat problems to just produce this liter of milk. But it's amazing you say, you know, this nutritious grain to feed these cows. What about the grain to feed the human? Just cut out the cow and just feed the human the grain. I mean, it's, it's amazing disconnect between human and animal and the fact that the animal is now treated like the piece of machinery that's used to milk it. I mean, it's, it's no longer an animal. So I think I might open a question to the panel then and just sort of say, in general, where do you think the responsibility for I'll say better protection of the dairy cow, because I have a feeling we probably all have a different idea of welfare or the use or abuse of dairy cows. So where do you feel responsibility truly lies if we want to change how the industry is currently being operated? Oh. Oh, it's, it's consumer demand. I think you... I mean, we see it with the eggs. I mean, I don't think there's probably a person in this room that buys cage eggs, is there? Okay. Put your um, hand up. Yeah. <laughs> Put your hand up if you do. Um, and, and we see what's happening now. Supermarkets are now, you know, stocking free-range eggs, and I mean, it's still a lot of work to be done with that because you know it's free-range and then there's free-range. Um, but there are some really beautiful egg producers that let their chickens, you know, run in paddocks, and and so um, and that's consumer-driven. So um, I think there's got to be education, um, and then consumer-driven, and consumers um, have to be understand that you know the cheap milks. You, you, you can't have a, a, a good practice. Um, you know, you can't run the high stocking rates. We run a, a stocking rate of one cow to a hectare. A good farmer in my area will run four cows to a hectare. So um, we we can't we can't um, produce a product for for what the, the, the system is paying. It's not sustainable. So um, the consumer's got to got to drive it. Um, and you and you will get it. And then you can. Um, I think you know. I'd love to see. I would love to see farms dairy farms growing for more food, you know, less cows, cut the cows back. Um, if people obviously would, would, I mean, the ultimate, your dream, and maybe that will happen in, in the future, but um, I think the start, to start, the start would be to, to, let's cut the herds back. I know some beautiful farmers that milk very small herds, um, and they grow, you know, then they grow other, other food products, and, um, and they have, and they, and they feed, you know, communities. Um, and they love their cows, you know. I'm talking about herds of 12 and 25 and 50 cows. Like, that's we don't need these big, big thousand cow farms. These thousand cow farms. I've been, I've been, I've been doing a bit of research and talking to people because I mean I haven't been on one. And you know, basically, if that cow, they say um, there's no time. If the cow goes down or anything, that's it. She's she's dead. She's gone. No one has time to look to look after them. I spoke to a neighbour of mine um, yesterday. He milks, I think he milks 50 cows, and um, you know he and I actually asked his opinion, but he said, Vicky, I love my cows, I love my cows, and they live till 12, 15 years old, and um, you know I, I work with him every day, I give him a pat on the back, and and you know he's 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 what's going, he's what's leaving the industry, and what's taking over is, is farmers can't afford to buy these big farms, um, to buy farms, and, and and who could afford to buy a farm to milk 50 cows or 20 cows, so. Consumers have to understand that um, 
you've got to pay more for the product and, and support the farmers. I start asking the question, we don't have this in the milk in the, in, in the industry, you can buy you know, low fat, 2%, you have all those choices, but you can't go and say, um, there's not, nothing saying this, this milk has been produced by an ethical, um, an ethical organic. I mean, I think, I don't know what, um, what Phil's opinion on organics is, but I certainly think, um, you know, it's got to be, if you go down this path, organics are, um, uh, it has to be organic because if we if, if we want to save the planet, we can't. We've got to stop using chemicals, and I don't know what your opinion on GMOs, but that's another <laughs> another time and another topic. But um, and what we've found by by you know reducing all the chemicals and and um, you know reducing the stocking rates, we've got really healthy animals, and we're feeding people, and and the people are healthy. So um, yeah, I think the tra transition is consumer support. Let's reduce the herd sizes and and forget the industry. They're not interested. They have not. They're not interested. In, I'm sorry if anyone from Jerry Australia is here, um, but I've tried to talk to you guys, and you, you know, you you're not interested in in in, in going this direction. You, you're looking at volumes and export markets and feeding masses and um, competing globally. You know, we're sending milk. We were sending milk to America. We, we were going through a drought in 2006, 2007. We were sending milk to America and undercutting their farmers, and, and their farmers are going broke. Like, where's the logic in that? It's psychopathic, seriously. You know, we should be doing that. They should, we should let them look after their, their communities, and, and we should be looking after our farmers, and, and, and it's not by milking big herds, because I know farmers that milk the 60-litre cows, they have the robotic dairies, they, everything, you name it, and they're going broke. They're going broke, and they're, and they're not happy people, so. Um, yeah, sorry. So, Deidre, do you have a response to that? Yeah, um, well, it's more a comment, and it may be um, a comment which some people don't agree with, which is fine, because hopefully there'll be some responses in the discussion. But um, putting my sociologist, anthropologist hat on, I see dairy as a very, very ingrained part of our food culture. And it's very hard to change culture and very hard to change food culture. And it's something that will be very, very slow. And I see uh, the sort of farm that Vicky is operating as a really, really important part of moving away from mass production dairy. I think it's very hard for a lot of people to even envisage a life without dairy food. And my view is that dairy, as part of the transition, needs to be seen as a luxury product. Um, it's, you know, these millions of litres of milk that get poured out as waste. Um, it's obscene. This is a very precious product. This is from the mammary gland of a mammal. I mean, and anyone that's nursed a child knows how precious that is. And if we're going to use it, we have to have the greatest respect for the product and for the animal that it's coming from and try and have some kind of social contract whereby the animal also gets something out of this, that it's not just exploitation. So I see raising awareness is absolutely crucial because most people don't know the reality behind dairy. And I think that's the first thing. And then offering them alternatives, 
organic dairy, alternatives to milk like soy and all the other kinds is part of that. But I think the first thing is having a discussion about it because it's, there's just been silence. And milk has been the norm. I mean, those old, old enough like myself to have grown up in the days where milk was delivered to the school and you were forced to drink it um, will remember that that was just normal. Milk bars were normal. Um, it's all part of our culture and it's not going to go away in a hurry. The other thing I think we have to remember too is for dairy farmers, that dairy farm is their home and they've often lived there generation after generation and that's a very hard thing. They're trying to hold on with the banks on the one side, the milk processors negotiating low prices on the other. You know, if we're going to have a transition, we have to do it in a consultative way with farmers and a, a humane way. Okay, that's so. it. I think we're going to open to Q&A in just a minute, but I'd like to just get a final statement from both Mo and um, Philip, please, just to sort of sum up what your thoughts are on what people can do, whose responsibility it is. I'll go first, because you're yeah. going to say something very profound. <laughs> <laughs> So you should finish on that note. So it's funny because oh, when Deidre was saying luxury product, I was just imagining milk with those amazing cigarette packets with the, the truth about cigarettes on them and how great that would be. This is the truth behind your milk. And really and truly that it's the industry and the government's responsibility to look out for its citizens. So why not tell them exactly what they're drinking and let them make their own decisions? And hopefully that would mean that they would turn to those alternatives. A great fact, and this is another one that I found. Almond Breeze, everyone's aware of that brand, Blue Diamond. They are projected to make greater sales in, in the U.S. than skim milk at the end of this year. So there is changes being made. Consumers are becoming more aware. I think uh, change is very hard for most people. It's why Beyonce is so great. Go Beyonce. I think people have a lot of celebrity worship. Uh, and if that's what it takes, really and truly, man, I never thought I would be giving Beyonce a shout out. But uh, really and truly, whatever it is, I think it does have to come from a personal place. I think people, as consumers, have to have an interaction. Their mother gets sick. Something happens to them where they really have to take it on board themselves. It's not someone shoving a pamphlet in their face, sadly, because, man, I can shove pamphlets in people's faces. But I think that there is something very selfish about the decisions being made. So I think it's industry and government's responsibility to look out for their citizens, tell them exactly what's going on, look out for people actually trying to make change, and just that there is a, a bright horizon with people actually becoming aware and, and taking those things on board. Great. Philip? You just mentioned uh, health, which is quite an important issue. Um, in the United States, lifestyle diseases caused by the meat and dairy industry has now bankrupted that country through Medicare. They would need $8 trillion invested in Treasury bills just to pay the interest, and they have precisely zero. They could shut down every school, university, army, navy, marines, air force, homeland security, FBI, and CIA, and they still will not have enough free cash flow to service their long-term unfunded Medicare liabilities because of the kinds of food they eat. 
Now please go back tonight, those of you who haven't already, and read stuff written by T. Colin Campbell or the Physicians Committee for Responsive Medicine. These issues are canvassed in, in quite good detail. Quite recently, I had dinner with Muhammad Yunus after he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And roughly about the same time, I was delivering a speech to a whole bunch of Indian entrepreneurs in New Delhi. And in the audience was Amartya Sen, who just won the Nobel in economics. And I discussed with these gentlemen the things that I discussed to, with everybody here, largely about the livestock industry in India. And I said that we know the problems with climate change. The Himalayan ice fields, icebergs up there, are correctly called the third pole because they feed half the world's population through the Indus, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, through the Mekong, the Irrawaddy, the Yellow Rivers, and these icebergs are melting fast. I asked them what was their opinion, and they said, we agree with you 100%. These Nobel, even Al Gore agreed with us. Now, these Nobel Prize winners have no argument with what rational people are saying about the livestock industry. But I get a lot of arguments from politicians who want to get re-elected re at the next election. So I think that we need to, uh, people like us, good, decent people of, of integrity, have got to come together and say, there's a new world out there, we've got to behave differently. In human history, only 100 billion human beings have ever lived. Seven billion people are alive today. And we torture and kill two billion sentient, living, loving animals every week. We stab and suffocate one billion ocean animals every three hours. 10,000 entire species are wiped out every year because of the actions of one species. And we now face the sixth mass extinction in cosmological history. If any other organism did this, a biologist would call it a bloody virus. So let's all come together. Let's not pick on specific industries. How can we work together to create a new environment, a new economic order that gives us health, wealth, strength, and preserves our own sense of kindness, compassion, intelligence, affection? These things are important values. Then we can start talking about sustainability because then we would have deserved to become sustainable. Until, until then, we don't actually deserve it. You're tuned into Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM, and that concluded the Rethinking Dairy panel discussion uh, held by Voices the Animal Protection Institute all the way into last year. Extremely relevant still. If you'd like to listen to the Q&A section, I shall put the link on the podcast page for this one. I think it's time to give our ears a break with some music. I just got my hands on this CD by Rennie, and it's called Everywhere I Turn. I'm going to play a song called Kindness I Can't Repay.
Stay home is where the heart is, but where is my heart? That was a lovely tune by Rennie called Kindness I Can't Repay. You are on 3CR Freedom of Species. It's time for some community service announcements. Next Saturday, the 20th of August, 12 noon till 2pm, is the Melbourne Pig Save Rally. So please uh, meet at the GPO building in Burke Street Mall uh, from 12 till 2 if you are in South Australia, be part of Operation Jadara. Come down for a tour of Sea Shepherd's ship, the MY Steve Irwin, which will be docked in Port Adelaide for the weekend of August the 20th and the 21st. On the Saturday morning at 10am, there will be a greeting to country by Carl Telfer with a special dance and smoking ceremony. Ship tours will be run every half an hour and will include a special screening of some exclusive footage from Operation Jadara in the ship's lounge. See firsthand what's at risk of being lost if BP is allowed to drill in the Great Australian Bight. There will also be a laneway market with community stalls from Sea Shepherd, the Wilderness Society and the Great Australian Bight Alliance and a Kids Interactive Activities Corner. Ship tours will be by gold coin donation. Sea Shepherd have launched their national beach cleanup campaign, the Marine Debris Campaign, and there is a beach cleanup in Darwin on August the 21st at 4 pm at Rapid Creek Beach. There's also one in Victoria in the Mornington Peninsula, Sunday, August the 21st at 1 pm to 3 pm at South Beach, Mount Martha. There is also another one in Sydney, and that's at Watson's Bay. That's Sunday, August the 21st at 10 to 1 p.m. also. So I'll put the links on our Facebook page. Now, after all that cleaning up, you might want to get cleaned up and put on a frock and go to a fabulous cocktail party on August the 20th called the Inaugural Be the Change Charity Gala Evening in which proceeds will go to the fabulous Little Oak Sanctuary. Now, this evening will be held at the Hyatt Hotel in Canberra, and that's inclusive of, wow, fantastic entertainment, jazz music. There will be speakers, Philip Wallen, who we heard from today on the panel, and Ruby Hamad. Ruby Hamad is a Sydney-based writer whose work often focuses on veganism, feminism and race. Ruby is a regular writer for Fairfax's Daily Life website, and for ABC's The Drum website. And Marisa Martin is EMC. She's creator of Tegan the Vegan. Tickets, $95 per person. The Institute for Critical Animal Studies are having their Oceana Conference for 2016 on 30th of September to the 1st October at the University of Canberra, Australia. It'll be three days of education, activism, connection building and fun in Australia's capital. Canberra's famous Living Green Festival will be following the conference on October the 2nd. Uh, There's a call for papers for the conference as well. For more information, please visit the criticalanimalstudies.org website. Thanks for tuning in to Freedom of Species. If you'd like to contact us, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org via Facebook page or Twitter. See you next week. Freedom of Species is a show about animals, for animals, listened to by humans. Tune in Sundays, 1pm. Born to be wild.
Hi, it's Patty Mark from Animal Liberation Victoria on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 a.m. I love community radio. It's so important we keep an independent voice out there, not only for the animals, but for all humans, for the environment. And make sure you listen to Freedom of Species. It's animal activism on the airways. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.